Tonight, the Imperial Information Institute has issued a response regarding their controversial documentary film, Blindly Cutting in the Goo, the story of Dr. Evazan. The Institute has taken on negative reception by telling consumers to not listen to the negative reviews and that you better watch it yourself. And after the break, we ask ourselves, is propaganda really all that bad? The government-run Imperial Information Institute says no. Stop that. These stories and brand new public service announcements from your friends at the Imperial Information Institute. The Imperial Information Institute. Why go to other sources for your galactic information when you only need us? Other sources of information are strictly prohibited by Imperial law. Uh, welcome, galactic citizens, to another episode of Hoth Topics, a podcast about Star Wars. I am one of your hosts, Ian. Joining me, as always, is the other one of your hosts, John. And joining us for the first time today, he is a producer extraordinaire and the founder of Havelina 98 Productions, as well as someone who has worked with Lucasfilm on a various number of events throughout his life, the magnificent Tony. Thank you, Tony, for joining us. Woo-hoo. Thank you for having me. Now, you and I met through uh, my girlfriend, actually, and uh, her first words to me were, you need to go talk to Tony because he also (laughs) really likes Star Wars. So um, this is kind of the first time we've got to sit down and and have a face-to-face chat about it, but I'm really excited to get get it going here. Hey, it's a great opportunity to share common knowledge and or fandom, so anytime we can get together and talk star wars sci-fi what have you it's always a good time awesome now your production company states specifically on the site that star wars was one of the big influences for you wanting to get into the film industry what about going to see star wars for the first time captured you in that way oh man probably cliched but you know i was uh probably six years old when that came out so i'm giving up my age here but uh that whole as a kid walking into the theater and looking up at the screen and of course the scroll starts up and john williams score comes across and just like sends chills and all of a sudden that star destroyer comes out of the top of the screen and i was hooked you know it was just like this is incredible and for some little movie that nobody even really knew what was about you know, my parents are, hey, let's go check out this movie. And, you know, like I said, walked out of that theater just like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. And, of course, at that age, not really knowing that there would potentially be sequels and things like that. And but just kind of ramped up from there. You know, like so many other people that Death Star or Star Destroyer, I'm sorry, coming off the screen like that just blew me away at that young of an age. Yeah, it's 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 so fun to hear those stories of people who were there first who were able to have that experience firsthand because as much as Star Wars was for me a game changer as well and it's one of the reasons why I love film the way I do, but I still, you know, my first experience was on VHS. John, what was your first experience with Star Wars? Was it also the VHS or did you laser disc maybe? Laser disc. <laughs> Uh, my buddy had rented two DVD or laser discs every week. One was Masters of the Universe, and the other one was Return of the Jedi. So those were the two movies we watched back and forth. Though I don't remember a lot of uh, uh, Masters of the Universe. <laughs> uh, 
So that first experience, that first movie kind of really hooked you. So how, what was it like learning that they were going to do another one with the empire strikes back? Uh, when I found that, obviously we didn't have the internet and the massive, um, knowledge that we have today, but you know, we were just, as soon as I heard that it was coming out, you know, it was just like, can't wait to go. And, you know, uh, my dad, I remember buying tickets. Uh, I was living up in the Dallas area at that point in time. I remember him saying, Hey, I got tickets to empire strikes back. And I just could not wait to go see this film, you know, and back then again, we, they didn't have these multiplexes that they have now. So waiting in line for two and a half, three hours just to go see this movie. And at that point, everybody, you know, had seen star Wars already. So you had fans and, you know, making new connections and friends while waiting in line for, like I said, three hours, two hours, whatever, you know, it took to get in. Um, but yeah, as soon as I heard that second one was coming out, I just couldn't wait to go see it. That's awesome. Awesome. Oh yeah. It, it, it's incredible how much an icon that series is, that mentality, the whole good versus evil, good triumphs, uh, everybody going through their various obstacles and things that they needed to do to get to where they needed to be, to find themselves. It's so universal, the story, that when George Lucas put that together, you know, I'm not even sure he knew how big it would be and how well people would react to it, but basically bankrupted himself in order to make this happen because Hollywood really didn't want to invest in this little cheap sci-fi film. So he did it all himself. Kind of glad he did. And I'm sure these movie studios are kicking themselves in the tail for not being able to get a part of that. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Now, as a, a filmmaker yourself, what are some of the, I guess, in both terms of the story of Star Wars and maybe the technical behind the scenes of Star Wars, what are some things about experiencing those two things that have helped you as a filmmaker in terms of picking projects and how you go about making your, your films and, and putting together your productions and whatnot. Um, that's actually kind of interesting because, you know, as you know, the first film, a new hope, as they call it now, instead mm -hmm. of just star Wars, it, you know, used a lot of practical effects. You know, they built all the, the models of the ships and ran those um, while they were filming. And then, of course, in today's world, it seems to be everything CGI. And so when the second trilogy came out, it seemed like they tried to lean and weigh more heavily on the CGI, which, you know, it, honestly, I like the stories and everything behind that. But I felt that it almost seemed like it was more of a, a video game. You know, I was in the middle of a video game as opposed to actually in the moment live story. Um, like I said, don't get me wrong. I love the love the stories, but I feel that they kind of went away from what made Star Wars what it was. In this last trilogy, I feel that they um, did a great job or are doing a great job since it's not over yet. Uh, combining the two together, you know, using practical effects with the CGI. And I mean, it's so massively done now that it's very difficult really to tell what is CGI versus practical anymore because they've been, the technology is such that they've been able to merge that together so well. As far as my productions, I really prefer the practical effects. I just think there's something 
to be said about, you know, building these props or, you know, figuring out a problem on how are we actually going to make this work? The idea is great, but how are we actually going to accomplish that? And the building of the practical effects, I think, adds to that. Now, the problem is, is you screw up prop and then you get delayed and have to build another one or hopefully you've had the budget to incorporate multiples but you know sometimes that's not the case so you, therefore you got to be careful when you're actually using these props and, and i think it also gives the actors something more because when you're working with a green screen a lot of times they're acting to the air right mm-hmm. there's nothing that they're physically bonding with so to speak and i think when you're using practical effects there's something physical there that they can see uh some cases handle or whatever so i think a lot of times that helps them get into the character a little bit more whereas some of the green screen stuff they're not really sure necessarily where they're supposed to be looking how they're supposed to be reacting so in in that sense I, i think i like the practical effects better than a lot of the cgi yeah, and, and you make a really good point about how far the CGI has come. Because de- definitely during the prequel era, it was the time of the sort of the rise of CGI, you know, not to... It had this sort of like, everybody's doing it because it's the new hotness. And now the, the pendulum has, has kind of evened out. It's kind of come around to using the right stuff for the right situations. John, you're you're really big into the prop making and... That side of things, what what are your thoughts on the practical effects side of things well, as someone who I, uh, I absolutely have like the same same view of of some of the newer movies that are I say newer, I mean anything past the original trilogy that Tony has where they relied a little too much on CG. And it, it to me it was very obvious when it was they were doing that. Um, like you said, Tony, sometimes the actors didn't really look like they knew what they were doing because they didn't know what was going to be around them. Ian, you and I, on our last episode, we were when we were talking about the blasters, the fact that they use these physical props, uh, not just for the blasters, but for the ships and a lot of the sets and and such and so forth. Yeah, like like Tony said, like it really helps not only us believe that what we're seeing is real, but encourages the actors to not just be, I guess, like cosplaying and actually be actors in, in their world. One of the things I love is that a lot of the sets from A New Hope are still in Tunisia. And like mm. they still exist as actual like locations um, that you can go check out. That just like kind of shows the longevity of these you know, physical assets that they're using as opposed to, um, I guess you could go to the uh, the studio that the Mustafar duel was shot in, but I mean, it's not going to have the same effect as going and looking at uh, um, the Lars farmstead. Well, you don't want to, you don't want to go look at a bunch of blue screens and boxes. Oh, I, I do because that would mean that I somehow got onto a, uh, onto those sets. Cause I'm sure there's other stuff I could steal. I mean, look at. <laughs> so Tony, what's a, what's a scene that sticks in your mind as like, wow, this is, this is one of the best Star Wars scenes out there. Um, man, that's kind of a tough question. I'll start off with one of the scenes, obviously, that very I remember very much is when uh, Luke had gotten uh, shipwrecked on Hoth, trying to find his way out, and the Wampa, you know, hung him up, and 
he's sitting there hanging by his feet and trying to grab the lightsaber with a force. And then all of a sudden, you know, he grabs it, turns it on and slices off. And this wampa hand, you know, comes flying across. That scared the bejeebies out of me, you know, being that <laughs> young. And it's just like that shock factor. So that's definitely a scene I'll never forget. But one of the, uh, as far as for me, that one of the classical scenes are basically the redemption when Luke is fighting the emperor or, or refusing to fight the emperor, I should say. Mm. And, and the emperor's taking his anger out with the, the force lightning and Vader's like looking at him, like realizing like, that's my kid. You know, it's like, you're messing with my kid. And at that point, you know, the father in him took over and you have to realize, I mean, you don't know it at the time, but he grew up not knowing he had kids. Right. So even though it's a battle between good and evil and he's trying to lure Luke to the dark side, there's still that father son bond. You know, it's almost like he's trying to reconcile that. And there at the end, when Vader steps in and takes control of the matter and said, look, you're messing with my kid. I'm throwing you over the, the rails here. And he was able to reconnect with his son and actually have that redemption moment, if you will. To me, that was always very powerful because I think when that happened, I looked at it kind of with my dad. I mean, I had a great relationship with my dad, so that's not the issue. But it was just like one of those things is kind of would think to myself, so like, would my dad actually do that for me? If it was a life or death situation, and would he put himself in harm's way to protect me and with that realization i was like yeah i I really think he would and at that point being that young it kind of like tear jerking because it's like that's what happened his dad stepped in to protect his son and was able to kind of basically wash away in luke's mind all the harm he had done to the whole galaxy look he destroyed the galaxy but he saved me and for that he is still my dad. There was still good in him. And so, again, for me, that was one of the very, you know, sappy, I know, but one of the touching moments that really stuck out to me in the overall trilogy. Yeah, it's it's easy to look at Star Wars and be like, it's an action film with laser swords, but it really does have those deep moments. I think I remember, uh, again, as a kid, my first real theater experience with Star Wars was with The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. And when when we got to Revenge of the Sith and just watching, you know, for a CGI puppet, Yoda gives a lot of emotion during the execution of Order 66 and with the John Williams score behind it juxtaposed with all those those scenes of the Jedi dying. And I am uh, a huge Jedi fanboy, as uh, I, I've been I, I've been accurately accused of this many a time. <laughs> so that was a, a moment that I, I think the first time in the theaters, you know, I was like, what, 14, 15 or something? And I was just like, oh, no. So there, there are definitely those moments of of real emotion um in the series especially if you're a younger kid and you're kind of connecting those dots so i really like i really like your pick there that's a that's a great that's a great scene and i don't i'm not sure how many people look at it from that angle or at least don't know if they do or not right yeah the the whole time 
y'all were going over um, your thing, I was trying to figure out, oh, what would mine be? And all I could think about was how I could somehow tie this into how my the first three Star Wars things I watched all were Return of the Jedi, the Ewok movies, and then writing Star Tours, which also ends in Endor. And all I could think about is, man, I don't have emotional attachments to anything other than Ewoks. <laughs> hey, there is that scene where... I, I, when, the first time just... I watched it, I, I think I, I was too young to like understand emotional weight in a movie. What I right. saw was murder bears attacking <laughs> and possibly eating stormtroopers and just having a, having a ball. Yeah, it's it's weird to me because like I I can't think of like any like one particular thing that emotionally stood out to me other than maybe the, uh... just listening to the the John Williams soundtrack. I have of of all the Star Trek or Star Trek man. I wow. Uh, I have heresy. What, what I was, is going I was on? about to sit down and eat lasagna, and then you started the call, and now it's in the fridge, and I'm hungry. Um, <laughs> uh, the Phantom Menace soundtrack is probably my favorite soundtrack. Because I think John Williams went overboard on inserting characterization of characters into their theme songs. Right. And I have nonsensical views on a lot of that song. Those those uh, those tracks that um, I'm sure I sh- are shared by me and the guy in the mirror was also me. <laughs> <laughs> there is that one scene, John, where the uh, Ewoks get blasted by the ATST, and then there's the one on the ground. He's like, get up! And then he doesn't get up. That's sad. Uh, yeah, when I saw that, I was like eight. And um, what I saw was a giant metal thing shoot little bears. And I didn't really have an emotional connection to that. I was like, yeah, that's what I would do to the bears. Wow. <laughs> they, they killed and ate my friends, possibly. <laughs> we don't know. Right. Allegedly. <laughs> See, John's an empire sympathizer. I don't know if you're, uh, you're aware of that or not. But uh... <laughs> yeah. the correct choice. Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, how about a favorite character of yours, Tony? Oh, man. That one is a tough one because... We ask the hard-hitting questions here. It is, because (laughs) each one has their own characteristics, and obviously that's what makes this such a great series. I would have to probably say Chewbacca, and try not to get a little choked up here, obviously, since Peter just passed not too long ago, but... uh, (laughs) His his character was one that he showed loyalty. It didn't matter what kind of trouble Han got him into. He was always there to bail him out. And again, I kind of relate that. I'm sure we all have friends that, you know, we're that guy that and there's always that one friend that finds his way into trouble no matter where he goes. And you're there to kind of back him up. Um, and that's kind of how I felt, you know, Chewbacca was with Han. You know, there's just... Didn't matter what kind of trouble he got into, he was there to back him up. Um, again, later on in the films, Solo, we find out why that was. You know, he helped him escape a, a prison and um, what have you. So, you know, there was kind of that life debt, if you will. But the the friendship was honestly there, and you saw that relationship in the films. And it was one of those things, too, where not only was he loyal to Han, but any of his friends with a short thought of Lando he may have snapped his neck but when he realized what Lando was doing he lets him go right it's that character you know the loyalty aspect everybody you know everybody loved the hugs from Chewie you know he's just a big giant Wookiee everybody liked the Wookiee hugs so he uh like I said for me I, I think that's why you know he he was always there didn't matter what was going on he was he was going to be there 
to have your back no matter what. So yeah, I guess that's one of the reasons why he's one of my favorite characters there. That is an excellent yeah. choice. I like that that take on, on Chewie. I've always felt that the... I, I don't know if it's still canon, the life debt. If, it, if it's made on screen, it's still considered canon. Since uh, all the movies have come out, like the solo movie, to me it always felt like that life debt was more of the excuse of how like guys don't like to share emotions with each other. And okay. so that was just the excuse like oh he owes me a life debt no they're best friends they're family they're but but they can't say that to each other because uh that's not what guys do so they <laughs> they look back into wookiee lore to see where they could uh create something and and even in solo too we there's that moment where chewie actually does leave han when mm-hmm. they're when they're in in the kessel mines and he comes back because he sees something in this guy who had dropped everything to get him into this area and gave him a, a weapon to go free his family, you know, and he's free to leave, at least in the current thing. It seems like he didn't feel like he needed to stay with Han, at least not in that moment, but he ends up doing it anyway. Yeah, Chewie's a great character. I Underrated, too, I think. I, think, I don't think enough people kind of realized how great of a character he was until, you know, really unfortunately uh, Peter passed yeah. away. But kind of just seeing all that kind of love for the character exude out and and seeing, um, you know, and seeing uh, Eunice too, Sotamo do talk about becoming Chewie and, and working with, with Peter Mayhew and and how just getting that side of it too. It's been, uh, it, it, the character's getting a lot more love recently and I, and I like seeing that. I like seeing that a lot. And I will say I'm I'm glad that they opted to go with a different visualization of Chewbacca versus the original Ralph McQuarrie version, which you know <laughs> yeah. if you go to Rebels, you know Zeb, Zeb is actually what Chewie was supposed to look like, right? Right, so, terrifying um, creature. <laughs> exactly. I don't think the market value would have been as much had they gone with him, but yeah. I'm I'm looking at my my six inch. Uh figure collection over here and there's a there's a big zeb shaped hole where all my my rebels characters are just like release the zeb (laughs) uh speaking of collecting you're something of a collector yourself is that right i have a few pieces here and there i've been told so yeah actually uh you know it's it's kind of unfortunate my most of my vintage collection you know with several of the storms and everything and growing up got pretty much demolished and almost non-existent but when i went to college you know i started when they started re-releasing the new the trilogy and in like in 97 and they started putting out product back in 95 i'm like this is great i can relive my childhood so kind of started buying bits and pieces at that point and then it just blew up you know over time (laughs) and uh now i've got most of my collection, I would say, is is ninety five plus. Um, I have a few vintage pieces, but uh, like I said, a lot of the original stuff got destroyed, and uh, it's kind of been hard to. Plus, with the fact that vintage pieces are a lot more expensive now yeah. um, mm. to get a hold of, and um, you know, it just I, I kind of looked at it as a passing, if you will. You know, it's like okay, I had them, I enjoyed them while they were there. Now here's the the new stuff. So, and I and I 
made the first, the biggest mistake that every Star Wars or any collector really, but more so in the Star Wars world makes is I'm going to collect it all. And there's absolutely no way you're going to mm-hmm. collect it all, right? Mm-hmm. So after a while, you start going, I can't afford this. Or more importantly, I don't have space for it. Um, then you start having to be a little more selective with the pieces that you acquire. John and I both collect a little bit our, ourselves. And we focused in on, I'm like, all right, I'm going to collect a, a few like big pieces that I like. And then focus on one like line of things. So I've been doing the Black Series six-inch figures, and I ran out of space for a while, and then I didn't didn't. Uh, but then I got a, a nice little display cabinet and more space. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I recognize from the get-go that there was no way I was ever going to collect them all. Uh, so I focused solely on Imperial figures of the six-inch line, and the tiny shelf that I thought would be more than accommodating is now out of room. Uh, and I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it does help that Hasbro's distribution never means that we never see any products over here. So <laughs> it's so weird. Great like, excuses to not have to fork out money for figures that I don't really need. Yeah, celebration's <laughs> going to be dangerous this year because it's close, and I'm going <laughs> right around the uh, corner. Actually, yeah. Now you've uh, you've actually worked uh, a number of the. Lucasfilm events, in, including Celebration and Comic-Con. So how did you start doing that, and what, what's that experience been like? That was actually kind of an interesting thing, and kind of transition from the collection into that. There was a guy in Houston uh, by the name of Chris Garricky, who is who works with the school district down here, uh, special ed and what have you, a really great guy. But it was something where back when eBay first started, it's like, oh, I can get a hold of stuff. And, you know, you'd have those last second bids, right, where everybody would wait till the very last 10 seconds or so and try to get those final bids in. And I kept beating him out of bids for items, like, at the very last minute. And at one point, he's like, dude, are you not going to, like, let anybody get anything, right? (laughs) So, you know, he did kind of a search and found out that, I lived within like a five mile radius of where he was at. And this was right about the time that Revenge of the Sith was coming out. And so they were going to have their midnight product release. And so like, hey, I live over here. Do you want to meet at Walmart? And like I said, we lived relatively close. Uh, We met up, became good friends. And at that point, Celebration 3 was going to be the first event that I attended. And so went up there and found out at that time that you could volunteer to work the events. So when Celebration 4 came around in Los Angeles, I put in my application and was selected to go up there and volunteer. The group that I worked with initially was Official Picks, who at the time was the Lucasfilm licensee for photos of the actors, characters, and what have you. So if they were signing legally, which of course all of them did, mm-hmm. um, they <laughs> had to purchase those photos from official picks to be able to sell those. So I ended up working with that um, that organization, and so in so doing, I was able to work with a lot of the actors as they did their signings. You know, just like a typical con, I was the help and mm-hmm. an opportunity with San Diego and Celebration Japan came up. And so at the time, Mary Franklin was the head of the events, and 
she reached out and said, hey, we've got these events coming up. We kind of heard what you did at Official Picks. You were kind of recommended, so, you know, we're reaching out. So when I got the notification, it was like for San Diego. And I was like, oh, I was like, was so wanting to go to Japan. So I wrote <laughs> back, I was like trying to be that humble. It's like, well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, but I was wondering, do you still have opportunities for Japan? Oh, yeah, we'd love to have you. I'm like, awesome. So went to Japan, worked with uh, Mark Hamill and Anthony Daniels uh, out there primarily. Fun thing about it was, is that you're in a foreign land, the language isn't the same, so you're hanging out with all the English speakers, and which just happened to be all the actors and artists and what have you. So I met a lot of artists that year. I met Steve Sansweet that year. Actually, I'd met him at Fan Days, which was the event that Official Picks held in the Dallas area, their own Comic-Con deal there. But when I you know, went to Japan, some things fell through. So a lot of the volunteers that they thought they were going to have, they didn't have. So I was able to work more closely with the, um, the actors than I thought I would. So again, over time, you know, that went well, uh, then was offered to work San Diego Comic-Con. And that was, you know, a blast. Uh, so probably since about 2007, I've been doing events uh, with them, either the uh, Comic-Con celebration. There were a couple of private events, like when they released Clone Wars and uh, Rebels, was able to go to those screenings. The, one of the coolest events was, you know, I, got, I was invited to attend the uh, Rogue One premiere mm -hmm. in L.A., and that was incredible. It's like, if I never go to the red carpet premiere again, I don't need to. I mean, they did this up so well. But for me, it was interesting because I'm a huge martial arts fan as well. And so I grew up watching, you know, Black Belt Theater and uh, what have you. And so Donnie Yen, being in Rogue One, was just like so excited to, to meet him because not only did he have the Star Wars connection, he had the martial art connection. And so uh, for me, that was a, a big moment, getting to meet him as well. All that transitioning into... Sorry, I got sidetracked. But no, of course. I met this, met this guy at Walmart and, like I said, became friends. And that's how I got into working with uh, the Lucasfilm events. And it's kind of, it's very humbling, honestly, because, you know, you'll hear, hear the fans, you know, they're walking around talking, hey, I just met, name your actor. And, like, they were really great. And, and it's good to hear all these uh, stories. And then you're sitting there going, you know, how great is it that I'm actually kind of in part of that inner circle. There's still even a more inner inner circle. But right. to the point that I do have access to some of these people was just, wow. And honestly, that was a very surreal moment for me because having been that little kid watching these movies on the screen to now being someone that interacts with these people, I was just like, how did I get here? It's one of those, yeah. and you know, why did the universe, if you will, chose me to be part of this saga? And you are strong with the force. I guess so, but very, like I said, very humbled and very uh, appreciative of you know the people that I met throughout the course of of working these events, and you know, again, like I said, you know, I've met a lot of artists, illustrators, but to be able to look at someone's art in the store or whatever. It's like, I know the person that did that. And it's just really incredible. And of course, working 
Um, I'm not a member of the 501st, but done some events with them and helping pull events together. And it's, again, you know, the good that Alvin Johnson and them, those guys have done, putting all that stuff together, you know, as charity work. Uh, mm-hmm. It's another way for a fandom to come together and do good for the community. And I think that's what, what I really like about the fandom. I mean, you'll find that there's a lot of people that they're very good-hearted, they're very giving, and it, it's just great to see, again, how this story has brought so many people together. I, I do remember the first time I heard George speak was in that celebration and uh, in Indianapolis, and he, it, he kind of shocked me, and I'm sure he shocked everybody, but one of the things that popped out of his mouth was, I'm appreciative, I thank you for the fans, but it's only a movie, get a lot. <laughs> and at first I was like, man, that's really disrespectful <laughs> to the fans. But as I thought about it, you know what? It is a movie, it's a story. It's great that people can take something away from that in whatever manner it is. But at the end of the day, you do have a life to live right now. If you're fortunate to have that life and the star Wars world combined, that's great. Right. Um, obviously not all of us have that. I, I have it to an extent, but obviously there are other things outside of that. And so I know it's almost blasphemy. The realization is that he makes a good point. I am grateful for the fandom but don't get so lost in the fandom that you forget to live your own life. Yeah. Is what I took from that. So, and that's, that's one of those kind of points that I think we all as, as these mega fans kind of need to think about every now and then again, especially lately we've gotten into this habit of, and we do it on this podcast all the time. We do it because it's fun. You know, we're going to nitpick and dive deep into the lore and you no, know, we don't talk about yes we do <laughs> talk about obscure nonsense and but being able to reel it back sometimes and just be like look we're doing this because it's a fun thing and no opinion of a movie franchise should be strong enough to end friendships and cause fist fights <laughs> you know <laughs> but that being said you know you make a, a really good point with the the amount of good that this story has been able to inspire in people. Um, last year, for the, the first time, we started promoting uh, the Kessel Toy Run, which was, is a Southern California charity that focuses on getting uh, Star Wars gifts for children who aren't going to make it home for Christmas, who have to remain in hospital, and, and their families. And that's just an amazing thing by itself. John and I are both members of the the San Diego Sabres group. We've talked about that many times and how they're just a, a, a great group of people. And, you know, they'll do community events and, and, and stuff as well. And it's connecting people together through Star Wars. And it's a good thing because sometimes people need that. You know, you don't you never know what someone's going through. You know, somebody close to them might be going through a hard time and. They need something to hold on to, something inspiring, a story where good triumphs over evil and the good guys win and you can feel like you're a part of a greater piece. And Star Wars has become that for a lot of people. It's very, it's a very powerful and effective thing. There, there's a story that that reminded me of, and hopefully I can get through it without getting choked up, because there was a, um, at San Diego, 
uh, Comic-Con a couple years back. Comic-Con? No, I think, I'm sorry, it was one of the celebrations. Um, we had a opportunity for people to come in and tell what Star Wars meant to them. You know, it was just a little kind of a video booth type scenario where they would come in and share how Star Wars affected their life or what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it. Anyway, their input. There was a guy who came in and he was telling the story of his son who was probably about eight or nine years old at the time and who had leukemia. And he said that the way his son would get through the radiation treatments was that, you know, he would close his eyes and envision that the, as the radiation came through, it was like stormtroopers were going through and blasting the, the radiate or the cancer cells. And so he saw Star Wars as a safe place, if you will, for healing. And the bad guys were the cancer cells and, you know, the stormtroopers were taking out the cancer cells. And, you know, it's like the first time I heard that story, I mean, I, I had tears coming down because it was just like so incredible. And for those that are going through those kind of illnesses and the pain that they have to go through for the treatments, which is sad in of itself. But to have the strength to be able to say, you know, it's like when I was at my worst, Star Wars helped pick me up to get through that. And, uh, yeah. and like I said, is there were quite a few stories similar, but that one really stuck out in my head uh, to this day. And it's just like, man. It, but yeah. it, it's those type of stories that, again, people come up with and Star Wars helped them through whatever it was that they were going through. And uh, there was no judgment, no anything. But for whatever reason, you know, that story helped them get through their troubles so yeah yeah it's 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 just the 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 community never ceases to amaze you know you 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 always have uh you hear a piece of information or a story like that or or see a photo of something really creative someone's done and it just blows it away i'm always uh blown away during a celebration because the ideas and the creativity that these fans have when they create their own costumes. I mean, I'm just like totally blown away on some of the stuff. And and honestly, even to the point where the movie hasn't even been announced yet and there's people that are already wearing the costumes of the upcoming movie. Like mm-hmm. how they're getting a hold of this information is beyond me, but it's great to see. Or you'll see somebody who spent thousands of dollars on a stormtrooper outfit. You'll see some kid who doesn't have the money, but he took cardboard and white duct tape and created his own stormtrooper armor out of cardboard and duct tape and it's just like it's incredible you know the skill and just the ingenuity of these the fans it i'm always blown away when celebration comes around yeah i'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that and and, and showing off too because uh john our, our my resident co-host here is uh one of those creative types so how many, how many, how many times did you get stopped because of your star tours officer uniform, John? <laughs> many times. <laughs> and the thing that I loved about being stopped in that costume is that it's generally Disney employees that used to work on the ride that would stop me right. or Imagineers that would stop to try to figure out what all the Arabesh <laughs> cards are on my, or uh, signs are on my uniform. 
that those are the kind of costumes I like to see at the conventions. They're not anywhere near something that you'd call a screen accurate costume. But right. like the five people that will recognize it will be like that. That that just made my day. Those are those are my favorite costumes. Right. I think when I was watching the stream for Orlando celebration, the the one costume that stood out to me was there was a guy on stilts in a mocap suit and he just had K2SO's head like <laughs> up <laughs> above him. <laughs> so I was just like, ah, that's amazing. Speaking of 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 the creativity of fans, um you've uh worked on a couple fan film projects in the past am i getting that right um i i personally have not worked on any of the star wars fan films i am fortunate to know a couple people that have but i keep trying to get there and then life gets in the way and just trying to coordinate schedules for people uh just hasn't worked its way in yet but i'm slowly getting there because eventually i'd like to to have that uh, about the only the one cool thing i can say is like i don't have a film but for celebration london i was able to be a part of the um, collectors cast there that they had oh, and yeah. so they had the giveaways the medallions uh that they created as uh giveaways for the panels so i can say that i have a licensed lucasfilm product that has my name on the back of it as a sponsor so you know it's one of those that is awesome and john will appreciate it because the item i happen to have was the uh tie fighter oh awesome so uh but yeah so hopefully one of these days i'd like to get my name on something else star wars related but (laughs) if not then hey at least i have that one piece (laughs) (laughs) well you're you're certainly uh uh, seem like the the person to to come to with some of these big ideas. So I, I you'll get your name on something <laughs> eventually. I have I have great confidence in that. I so, appreciate that. So uh, you know we've spent a lot of time talking about the present and past of Star Wars. What are you looking forward to in terms of the future of Star Wars? Because we've got Rise of Skywalker coming out kind of in the short term, and I'm just now realizing it's September, like mid-September. That's frightening. And going forward, you know, where we have all these projects we're not necessarily used to seeing in, in mm-hmm. Star Wars land. Right. Live-action series, you know, kind of the the big unknown, what happens after the Skywalker saga. So, right. So what are you looking forward to for the future of Star Wars? Actually, I, I'm really looking forward to the Mandalorian series. I, I think John Favreau is going to do a really good job on that. And I'm actually excited to see uh, a lot of the other bounty hunters or types of bounty hunters uh, that are going to be coming out in that series. I, I think everybody's always had that mystical lore of where did the Mandalorians come from, you know, and and it got touched a little bit on rebels and what have you but at the same time it's like what was their background you know for the longest time boba fett was awesome but nobody knew where he came from or mm-hmm. even even though attack of the clones kind of addressed a little bit 
dad, they formed all these uh, clone troopers out of him. But at the same time, you're like, okay, but it never really said anything about where his dad came from. So understanding maybe a little bit more on the, the Mandalorian lore, I'm excited about that. Of course, the only one wiser than Obi-Wan is Yoda. So I'm really kind of looking forward to see kind of hopefully they fill in a lot of the backstory between obviously when he went to Tatooine and that whole period and to kind of see you know everybody had the theories way back when it's like okay did he ever hook up with anybody you know did he have a love that he had to give up or she was taken from him or just what made him get because in my mind there had to have been something other than just watching out for Luke that made him become a hermit Mm -hmm. and so you know, what was it? You know, what was it that he was having to reconcile within himself? So those I'm looking forward to. I'm excited about Clone Wars coming back. Yeah. Obviously, I'm a, a huge Ahsoka fan. And uh, again, that's kind of one of those redemption stories in a way of, and is it, did she really redeem herself? You know, and, and it seems, you know, that she had, but it was like I say, kind of a typical teenager, you know, they're growing up, they're having to figure things out, make their own decisions at some point. They've been taught a certain way, but is that the way they really want to live their life? So Mm -hmm. it appears that she kind of goes off and has to figure out what kind of life does she want to live? So I'm I'm curious to see how those storylines kind of come back and uh, get tied together. You know, Dave Filoni, has done a great job with those series and uh, really looking forward to to seeing what they come back with. Awesome. Now, we've done a lot of interviewing you here. Do you have any questions for us, your local co-hosts? Your local co-hosts. Okay. From not, not really have, local. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, it's cross-country. Cross so yeah. <laughs> um, have, have either of you had the opportunity to... Uh, visit Rancho Obi Wan. No, it is it is a it's a bucket list item for me. If I, like I said, if you ever get the opportunity, get with Steve Sansweet, go check out Rancho Obi Wan. It's a Star Wars mecca for collectors. Um, it's amazing, and the tour that he gives is incredible because you hear all the behind the scenes stories of how pieces work accumulated you know um this was something that was going to be thrown away and they grabbed it and found out oh that was the door to the cantina or you know just (laughs) different things like that or somebody wanted to build a star wars pinata so they made this really cool bantha pinata you know and it's again part of it's a creative creativity i mean you'll see obviously licensed materials but some of the unlicensed Things are that collectors or people have made, fans have made to put in the collection are, are really intriguing as well. And again, it goes back to the the creativity of of people. Of you know, there's some of these sculptures and or um, items that are created that you would assume that they were professionally done. Some of them may have been. Maybe that's the craft that these people do. But mm-hmm. then just seeing some of the other stuff excuse me, and the, and the stories behind the acquisitions are actually mind-blowing sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely a bucket list item for me. I, I need to make it out there at some point. I think that might be like a, uh, a big like self-gift one day. You know? <laughs> You've achieved X goal in your life. Go, go to Rancho Obi-Wan. So. Right. 
Yeah, I, no, I, um, I love Steve. He seems like every time I see an interview with him, he just seems like the most nicest, genuine person. Uh, though I do fear that he sets a dangerous trend for other collectors who will think <laughs> that their collection will one day become a museum. Right. <laughs> well, the way I look at it is if you've got the room to display it, do it. Kind of my problem is he collected so much stuff <laughs> that I just kind of run out of room. <laughs> I have probably enough artwork to wallpaper my house completely. Not that I would ever do that, but just, and it's sad, honestly, because there's so many great pieces to display that you just don't have room for it all. And so Mm -hmm. how do you decide what goes up, what doesn't? So that gets a little treacherous because then not only does the collection itself cost money to to display it, people forget about, okay, if I'm going to show this, oh, I need to put it on something. Yeah. Uh, there's another few hundred bucks. Or right. if I'm not going to display it, oh, now i got to go buy storage facilities. So there's always that. The thing I try to encourage to collectors is like, you know, collect within your means. And those of us that collect do not adhere to that. But no. at <laughs> the same time, you know, it, it's a nice thought. Because, again, you know, then you start kind of getting like, oh, I'd really like to display that, but I don't have room. And then it kind of becomes a little depressing, honestly, because you're like, there's so much great stuff, but I can't show it all. So right. then, well, why should I buy more if I don't have room for it? And that argument goes out the window real quick. Mm-hmm. But at least you need to ask yourself the honest question. Why buy it? Because it's there in front that, of me right now. Star Wars. <laughs> Is there any other reason? Yeah. Uh, I fell into that trap multiple times. You may or may not have had this discussion in the past, but all right. So everybody made this, you know, there was a huge uproar on the fact that the Wookiee never received a medal, right? At at Yavin, right? So they're Mm -hmm. like up there, everybody celebrating the Wookiee never gets the medal. I've always questioned why did R2 not ever get a medal? Or why did somebody not, at the very least, like we do on the bombers, paint a medal on him so that he was recognized as a hero for the rebel cause. R2 has done a lot that he has not been recognized for. I agree with you wholeheartedly. So I have an opinion that I just thought of for R2. When Luke made the killing shot on the Death Star, R2, if I remember right, wasn't working? He was was fried, yeah. Yeah. So technically, he didn't participate. He did. He protected (laughs) Luke from getting shot from behind. He took the bullet for Luke. So if anything, he should also get a purple heart. Yeah, but this this could also be another darker uh, (laughs) symbol of how sentient species in the Star Wars galaxy view Wookiees and droids as still being basically a slave class, whether or not that's uh, consciously acknowledged by the rebel alliance i think their actions show that they are just as bad we won't say they're racist or anything (laughs) speciesist yeah but i don't see a medal on that droid or that wookie so Uh, anyway gonna have to address that guys maybe han used that that his reward money to like make those and just like gave them to his friends (laughs) what (laughs) except for the wookie uh that that makes even less sense Well, you know, and that's another point, you know, of why Star Wars is so great, because it's all about perception. 
Mm. Right. So siding with John for a moment, you know, don't do it. The rebels <laughs> theoretically could be considered the terrorists, right? Yeah. The empire was this set up government and people were somewhat happy until the emperor took over, but put him aside. Everybody was, that was your normal everyday government, people working hard or whatever. And so the argument could be made, well, the rebels were technically the bad guys because they disrupted all of this normal, quote unquote, living experience, right? So that's one of the the beautiful things about the Star Wars saga is that depending upon your perception, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, right? certain um, point of view yeah yeah exactly it's always from a certain <laughs> point of view it's it's and that i think that's one of the things that we as fans get we can get ourselves into trouble a little bit if we don't reel that back a bit just be like no and then, you know fist fights <laughs> and and then me yelling at john about how he's a imperial sympathizer and then he yells something about how the jedi are evil and then you know laughs and runs away <laughs> well and again, that was one of the, uh, or kind of going back to being a kid and what was one of the things that really caught my eye is Darth Vader and the Stormtroopers, right? The armor that they had, um, I'd mentioned I was a huge martial arts fan. And so when I saw that, I instantly thought, you know, samurai. And mm-hmm. so for me, that was like, that is so awesome. You know, that's what a futuristic samurai would look like. And uh, so... Again, for me, that was a, a really tying in um, those two items. And Ray Park. Yeah. And him being a martial artist. You know, when, when Darth Maul came out, again, that was just like, oh, um, the whole double-bladed saber. You know, it was mm-hmm. just like, again, pulling in the, uh, the martial art fighting skill along with the lightsaber was just, for me, was incredible. Yeah. Absolutely. There are just so many cool moments to pull from. We could literally talk about this all day. <laughs> That's why we do the podcast. Uh, well, uh, I think that's going to do it for this conversation. Tony, where can people find you and your exploits? Um, currently, you know, I'm on Facebook. Uh, my company, Havelina 98 Productions, uh, is out there. Um, under my name, Tony De Benedetto. If you can figure out how to spell it, I'm I'm there. Uh, <laughs> there is Instagram, uh, Tony underscore De Benedetto. But yeah, like like I said, the Havelina ninety eight Productions dot uh, com. I forgot to finally got the website up, and that will have a list of all the movie projects that I've worked on um, alongside the IMDb uh, under Tony De Benedetto as well. So, yeah, there's, you know, most of the social medias, I'm on there somewhere. And um, if you have any questions, feel free to get a hold of me. You know, contact me. Uh, talk Star Wars, talk sci-fi. Want to buy one of my movies? You know, any of that is an option. Uh, I'm going to so, second that because one of your movies is also one that I worked on. So yes. <laughs> buy one of them, please. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, I've, I've been really fortunate, aside from Star Wars, being able to uh, being in the industry, and I think Star Wars probably opened up a lot of those doors for those other connections to, you know, be able to work with people like uh, Michael Bean and D. Wallace and you know Gabrielle Stone. I don't know. Like I said, it, sometimes I still pinch myself and 
looking around going, how did I get here? How do I know these people? And it's just very humbling and um, exciting at the same time. So hopefully it's something I can uh, continue to be successful with. And hopefully one day one of my movies will hit the big screen that everybody just loves. So, yeah, well, we look forward to that day and you've been a pleasure to have on the podcast and we hope to talk to you again in the future. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Oh, maybe yeah. uh, maybe we'll do an in-person interview next time you're, uh, you're in Los Angeles. I'd love to come by. Uh, again, I appreciate you guys having me and uh, enjoyed the time together. Absolutely. And we'll see you at uh, Celebration this year. I oh, hope yeah. so. Unless something comes up, I yep. plan to be there. <laughs> yep, we plan to be there as well. Awesome. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Hoth Topics, a podcast about Star Wars. If you would like to find out anything more about our podcast, you can go to hothtopicspodcast.com, shoot us an email at hothpod, or tweet at us on the Twitters at hothpod. And the email address is hothpod at gmail.com. I don't think I did the full address. I've done that a number of times before. I'm bad at this. Woohoo! For everybody here at Hoth Topics, I've been Ian. I'm so excited to eat lasagna right now. You don't have any idea. That is a very hungry John. And Tony, <laughs> once again, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, guys. We will see you next time. Closing awesome. music. Closing music. Credits. Screen wipe. <laughs>